This is an ABC News special. COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. You can get a haircut again in most of Florida. You can shop most places now in New Hampshire, and they're ready to race horses in Kentucky. Those are among the reopening steps in 10 states today. To get the whole country back, there's a growing consensus about the need for dramatically scaled up testing, along with contact tracing and isolation. Harvard's Safra Center for Ethics first presented this testing, tracing, isolation trio last month in its roadmap toward pandemic resilience. And while it applies to every state, it does not apply to every state in the same way. Harvard's Daniel Allen is with us again now because you've done a follow-up to that first report that breaks the country into color-coded zones. We started out by asking the question of what level of testing the country as a whole would need in order to have testing be a strong enough tool of disease suppression that we would not need to rely on stay-at-home orders. It could do so only minimally. And that resulted in a number of a national aggregate number of 5 million tests a day supported by effective contact tracing. We have to recognize that the country has places that are very high prevalence, where there's already more than 1% active virus uh, circulating in the population, and then other places that are moderate prevalence and also make it possible for people to tell what kind of situation their own community was in. Right. So you've now put out this kind of color-coded chart. So as I said, two weeks ago, there were still sort of green areas in the country where really low prevalence, almost no active cases of the virus. And the goal ultimately is that we all want to get back to green. But right now, most of us are in yellow and some of us you know, in the New York, New Jersey area, for example, are in red. Um, in the yellow areas, um, it is within reach to build testing programs strong enough to suppress the disease and really start getting places back to green. And that should be the goal. And a good way of measuring how well any given community is doing is to look at positivity rates on testing. So as long as your testing is broadly equitable, you're not limiting your test to say celebrities or something that you're really testing your whole community, then you can use the positivity rate to judge whether you're testing enough. What has not changed is the gen- general approach of, of testing and tracing on a fairly large scale. It, it's, it's just a matter of degree? Exactly. Testing, tracing, and supported isolation. Um, but now what we've done is really targeted guidelines um, according to prevalence levels in different places. So, for example, um, so for the parts of the country that have, you know, have recently been green or if they get quickly back to green, um, it's reasonable that they... Um, not have any stay-at-home orders um, operating, and they don't actually need a full-board testing program operating. But for places that are in the moderate range, they really should have a full-board, full-blown uh, testing program operating um, if they're also um, keeping the economy open. So those things really go together. So for the person on the street, there are different levels of risk, again, depending on whether you're in the green, yellow, or red zone. So if you are in a red zone, um, you really shouldn't um, go out. You should really recognize that you are contributing to disease deceleration by staying at home. If you're in um, a moderate prevalence area, then if you're not in a high-risk population, it's reasonable to move around as long as you're wearing masks and things like that. If you are in one of the high-risk categories, vulnerable categories, even in a moderate area, you probably don't actually want to be returning to your routine mobility. And that sort of differentiated picture, I think, has been hard for all of us to see and get our heads around. It's perhaps the most important thing. Danielle Allen at Harvard's Safra Center for Ethics. And while there's a broad focus in the country, of course, about reopening, there is more to learn about the coronavirus itself. 
Dr. Matt Hines is with us from the Tucson Medical Center, where he has been reviewing the work of a study out of Europe that may explain why men are suffering more from COVID-19 than women. Dr. Hines, this study found that men's blood contains greater concentrations of an enzyme known as an ACE2 that may help COVID-19 infect cells. With regard to how the virus infects our cells, it, um, it basically needs to find a way in, and the receptor, the ACE2 receptors involved there, the level of um, ACE2 is higher in, um, in males as compared to females, and um, it would stand to reason that since this has quite a lot of expression is found uh, in large concentrations in, for example, lung tissue, which is obviously a major issue with the disease process and some of the respiratory failure issues. Um, having a higher concentration would then allow for more opportunity for the virus to, uh, to access our cells. This could be one piece of the puzzle in terms of things that might explain why men have a higher uh, morbidity, mortality, death, and, um, and just disease uh, from, from, the, from the virus. One, but there may also be others, right? Right, and, and that's just, just when it's early on like this, I, this feels like going through medical school with your patients like and their families and you know everyone is going and and the nursing staff and everyone is you know the hospital administrators we're all learning about these things at the same time so i suspect this this could very well prove to be one factor um it might not be the only factor it could very well be several things um that that, uh, come out uh, in combination that cause this we're speaking with Dr. Matt Hines at Tucson Medical Center, and I wanted to ask you about a push in your county, in Pima County, to return to work. A memo went around to county employees that said no more working from home, no more telecommuting, even if there's someone at home that needs care, even if they're not comfortable coming in. And if they do stay home, they need a doctor's note and to use vacation time. I, I was really stunned to see this. I, I, I reviewed a memo that, that was apparently sent to all county employees saying, because uh, pr- previously the county had uh, tried to allow, the leadership were trying to allow some, uh, you know, telecommuting to facilitate that. They have the technology. It's been there actually for some time. And then this memo came out in the middle of last week saying, all right, we're good. Uh, let's get back to work. Um, you have to, very, very strict, you know, you have to get a signed letter from your physician. Good luck doing that. Um, you have to, if, if you're going to try to stay home uh, and try to telecommute. And many positions, even essential positions um, in the county serving the public can be done very safely and efficiently from home with the existing technology that we have. So um, it just, to me, I was really it just flies in the face of, of what um, what our public health officials and, and scientists are recommending that we do right now. And at a time when, as we were just discussing, the, the rate of fatalities, the deaths from COVID-19 are going up in the state, and yet the county leadership seems to be interested in forcing all of these folks, um, you know, into a potentially risky situation. And I... I, I very much hope that they will reconsider this um, once they hear from the public this week. Dr. Matt Hines at Tucson Medical Center. The Trump administration is trying to contain an outbreak of COVID-19 inside the White House after some senior aides tested positive. ABC's Karen Travers covers the White House. She's with us from Washington. Is there a fear now, Karen, that the virus has spread through those cramped quarters of the West Wing? Not if you ask the president that, Aaron. And he was asked that on Friday. And he says he's not worried. He says he, he doesn't 
essentially have the time to worry about that because he has to get things done. But there are changes, some small changes at the White House already today. Uh, sources tell us that that people will be encouraged to wear masks. You'll start seeing Secret Service agents wearing masks and they had not been in recent weeks. Uh, but the big thing that the White House is going to do is ramp up its testing for COVID-19 after those two members of the staff last week tested positive. Sources tell us that there's a list of more than a dozen people who work in the West Wing, and they're going to be tested every single day for coronavirus before they report to work. There are also aides, if you're scheduled to meet with the president, you're also going to get a test. So essentially, the White House can stay as close to normal because they have access to these tests and the ability to just keep checking people who are going to be anywhere in the president's orbit. Well, that's good for the White House and for the president, but he has also been pushing for businesses to reopen even in places that don't have that kind of testing capacity. Right. The president has said two things. One, that testing is a local issue. States need to be handling this. And the other is that businesses need to start reopening. He said last week that we don't have a choice, that this country has to do this. It can't stay closed. It can't stay locked down. So you have the White House, the president's chief of staff, saying the White House is the safest place you can come to. Sure, because everybody can be assured that they're getting tested every day and aren't spreading this virus or they don't have it. But businesses that are being told they have to reopen, they don't have that same access to testing. And, you know, people are worried, the business owners, but also the employees who say they want to come back to work, but they also need to feel safe. And they're not sure how they can feel safe if one of their colleagues, you know, at the restaurant they work at or the hotel that they would be going back to work at, if one of their team members comes down with this and you say everybody's got to get tested, Can they do that? And how quickly? How quickly can they then get things back up and running again? ABC News White House correspondent Karen Travers. Our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jennifer Ashton, is coming up to answer more questions of yours about coronavirus. I'm Aaron Katursky. You're listening to an ABC News special. You're listening to an ABC News special. COVID-19. What you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Lindsay Davis. With us, as always, ABC Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Jen Ashton. Jen, good to lay eyes yes, on you and physically be same, in your company. So with so many states in various stages of reopening, what do we know? Well, first of all, we have to take a little bit step back and look at the history here. When the task force recommended their guidelines for reopening, these are what were used as the general gating criteria. Again, suggestions that states or, or cities see a downward trajectory of documented cases within a 14-day period period or a downward trajectory of positive tests as a percentage of total tests. We don't usually hear that breakdown, the percentage of total tests being done over a two-week period. And I think it's really important to remember here, just because we were in lockdown for one to two months, the virus did not disappear, nor will it. So it's a matter of learning how to safely live with it. And you've been researching the various scenarios of what could happen. What are the possibilities? Well, according to some top infectious disease specialists and epidemiologists who are looking at various models, there are three basic scenarios that they're looking at as possibilities over the next couple of months and years. One is something called a small recurring outbreak scenario where you see kind of like little peaks of this virus um, recur. The other one, which is obviously the most dreaded, is a second monster wave or a second wave, which we don't know whether that would be in the fall or winter, or the third, just a persistent crisis. Now, again, all of these scenarios are just theoretical at this point, but again, we have to prepare 
in theory, for any of them. There are so many things that I would classify as we still don't know what we don't know. What would you say specifically are the unknowns when it comes to reopening? Well, I think that is so important as we face this crisis, Lindsay, is identifying and remembering what we don't know because there's still a lot to learn. I think when you look at this, no one has a crystal ball here. So we don't know what the season effect will be. We don't know what the summer will do to this virus or the rates of spread. We don't know how testing will inform our response, whether that's a combination of rapid diagnostic tests for acute disease or antibody testing. And we don't know how contact tracing will be able to play a role in controlling this virus. So a lot still we need to learn. A lot we don't know, but still a lot we're learning. That's right. Absolutely. Every day. As Jersey City takes a huge step forward, vowing to test all residents, both symptomatic and asymptomatic for COVID-19, the Garden State's second largest city is still deciding how to reopen. Here to discuss is the mayor of Jersey City, New Jersey, Stephen Fulop. Welcome, Mayor. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Now, you've been easing some restrictions, reopening city parks last week and beginning today. Farmers markets can reopen. Is this all part of your official plan? And when do you expect to fully reopen? Yeah, so uh, we brought street cleaning back. We're bringing City Hall employees back uh, next week. And we're gradually moving in a direction of safely and cautiously reopening parts that we can. And then the parts that we don't have control over, uh, we're setting policies in place so that when the governor does give us the green light, we'll be ready to go with uh, safer policies around those as well, like restaurants and uh, barbershops, et cetera. Right. And you're testing around 4,200 people a week at the moment, but you say that you'll need to test more than that in order to come out of shutdown. So what are you doing to make sure that there are enough tests for your residents? Yeah, so we're testing more than any city in the state of New Jersey. We're doing asymptomatic testing. We're doing antibody testing. We were the first to do that. Um, we're, we're helping businesses get set up to reopen. We have regular rotations in more vulnerable communities. That said, uh, we're also realistic about the fact that it's hard to get access to tests. And so the only thing that's going to really change the paradigm long term is uh, a vaccine. And there is no such thing as a risk-free world without a vaccine. So we're going to be realistic and slowly and cautiously move forward is how we're approaching it. And you put new testing methods into action to make testing more accessible. Tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, last week we expanded our testing to asymptomatic uh, uh, residents. So you don't need to show any sort of uh, symptoms whatsoever. Um, We are testing uh, smaller businesses that ask for all their employees. For example, some medical offices that are looking to open to do non-emergency type uh, or uh, emergency type dental work, so to speak. Uh, We're testing those entire businesses. And then we're setting regular rotations up at our senior homes, our housing authorities, the more vulnerable communities, so we could recognize clusters a little bit earlier than what was previously done. Your economy obviously relies heavily on the manufacturing and construction industry. So what are you doing to make sure that those employees have their jobs and that they're safe at work? Yeah, I mean, the governor's executive order up till now had a lot of exemptions in it. So we're still seeing a lot of the larger sites moving forward. Um, There's more safety around them with uh, temperature checking before they come in, uh, construction workers using masks, more spacing between them. But yeah, our economy is tied to New York, but we've had uh, a significant uh, impact here from the pandemic. We've had more than 6,000 cases uh, and more than 300 fatalities. So we're cautiously moving forward is the right way to say it. Cautiously moving forward. All right, Mayor, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it.
The Los Angeles Unified School District, the nation's second largest, closed its doors on March 13th due to the coronavirus pandemic. Superintendent Austin Butner announced last week that the 2020-2021 school year will begin on August 18th. However, it's not clear whether the students will be in the classroom or continue with remote learning. Joining us now with more is Superintendent Butner. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Lindsay. So now we know when the school year will start, but not where. When do you anticipate students going back to their physical classroom? We'll have to see what science tells us. Our first priority is to make sure that everyone in our school community, that students, staff, families, and visitors to our campuses are safe. And we'll be guided by three things. The science, what does testing tell us? Is a robust system of contact tracing in place? What we can do instructionally, it's not as simple as just moving desks apart. An elementary school and a high school have very different programs. If you think about a small group of elementary school students together during the day versus a high school student who's changing in many different classes during the day. So we'll have to see what we can do instructionally. And last, we'll have to see what funding the state provides us. In California, school funding is provided by the state And we'll have additional costs for safety equipment, for masks, for testing, and other things like that to make sure the technology and other things we'll need stay in place. So those three things have to be in place, the science, the instructional program, and the funding. Right, and you mentioned the technology as well. One of the hardest parts of having children learn online is the access to tablets, laptops, and Internet. Eighty percent of your students live at the poverty line. You announced today that you are finished with device distribution, meaning that every single one of your students now has a laptop or tablet and Internet to use. How are you able to make all that happen? Heroic efforts by some of my colleagues. We decided before schools closed that we wanted to make sure every student could continue to learn. We had to provide that connection to the school community and to their classmates. And it's not just the device, it's internet access because so many of our families couldn't afford that internet access. We put together a plan and through a lot of hard work this week, we'll cross the goalpost of making sure every student's connected. Now we have to make sure they're continuing to learn. We're training educators. We're gonna do some very exciting things this summer in summer school to make sure students continue to learn. But the basic piece has to be in place, which is every student connected to their school community. And basic also food, because in addition to supplying the students with technology, you've also managed to distribute 20 million meals. How important was it to make sure that your students were still getting the meals that they depend on? Well, Lindsay, thanks for acknowledging that. We provide a safety net to so many of our students and families. We are serving more meals each day uh, than would be needed to serve everyone in Vermont or Wyoming. More than half a million meals a day will cross the 20 million mark this week. That's actually not something we're going to celebrate. We're going to recognize there's great need in our community, and we're serving everyone who is in need, both children and adults. And you've also said that teachers need to be more familiar with teaching online. How are you able to equip them? How are you helping them to do that? We carved out time for training. We've trained almost 35,000 of our educators. That's teachers, principals, administrative staff, a 10-hour course in the basics, Almost half have signed up for another 30 hours of training to become masters, and we're sharing that good practice as they learn. There's not a playbook for this. So much of the online in the past has been with the real selection bias. Students, families, and schools in more affluent communities with plenty of resources to train. We're doing this on the fly, but we're making sure educators are trained to do the best they can for our students. Doing it on the fly, but it seems like you guys are doing a great job. Thank you so much, Superintendent Butner, for joining us today. Thank you.
Coming up, the nation's nursing homes have been called ground zero in the COVID-19 crisis, the new efforts to stop the spread and save lives. And then we continue to shine the light on hero nurses. And the first major sports event returned this weekend. We'll talk to the head of the UFC. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Lindsay Davis. And welcome back, everybody. Jen is back with us, Dr. Jen, with a look at many of your questions. So question number one, is there any reason to believe the version of the virus circulating on the East Coast is more or less dangerous than the version on the West Coast? This is such an interesting question, Lindsay. I think people should think of this just as we do influenza. We always hear year to year that there are different strains circulating. Some are more virulent. Some are more transmissible. Some affect children more than adults. That's kind of how we should start thinking about different strains of this coronavirus. A different strain doesn't necessarily mean more dangerous, um, but we're still in that stage of collecting data. We have to remember this is a family of viruses that mutates or changes slightly for a living, really. Um, Not quite as quickly as um, other viruses, but it definitely can do that. And so people are looking at the genetic fingerprint of this virus, different parts of the country, and tracking all that clinical data. And here's a question I've heard people ask before. If you lick an envelope to send a card, can the person who opens it get the virus from the envelope closure? Good question. I know that people don't like to hear this answer, but no one knows why, because they haven't done that experiment in a lab setting or even in real life. You have to remember that as that saliva on the envelope glue dries, it can potentially desiccate the virus. Uh, So, again, you can always use the, the letter opener or the knife trick. If you're really concerned, wash your hands a lot as you're opening your mail. And maybe perhaps more people will stop using the lick envelopes and they can they have the self adhesive. That's right. Exactly. All right. Question number three. Can you explain what Kawasaki disease is? Kawasaki disease is, first of all, we don't know what causes it. Mm -hmm. This is a nonspecific syndrome, really, that generally most of the time affects children in response to some type of infection. And it's really hallmark features are inflammation of blood vessels. In severe cases, it can affect the blood vessels of the heart muscle. Um, But again, what we're seeing with this mysterious syndrome in this country and in Europe that may be associated with COVID-19 kind of has similar features of Kawasaki disease. That's why a lot of pediatricians are mentioning it as a descriptive term right now. All right. Next question. What are some ways that children can avoid cross-contamination with washable and disposable masks when schools ultimately do open back up? Well, you and I are both moms, so we know that it's not easy to train children to uh, be the most hygienic creatures. So Teachers at younger ages, particularly in elementary school, are really going to have their hands full right. of this because this is completely uncharted territory. But I think if you're wearing a mask that can be washed, you want to almost treat it as socks or underwear and wash it every day. Um, If not, you want to use some kind of non-toxic disinfectant if possible. There are a lot of herbal ones uh, that can get you through the day. But the most important thing to teach our children, regardless of their ages, is hand hygiene. That mask is not a Teflon shield. It's really for the protection of others. And, you know, as you mentioned, I have a kindergartner and he's touching the mask and then your hands are contaminated, right? Because you just, so it's... That's right. Well, a lot of work for us to do as moms, as always. (laughs) And uh, you can submit your questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at DRJ Ashton. Across the country, nursing homes have been hit hard during this pandemic. According to new data, one out of every three COVID deaths 
is a nursing home resident or worker. Here now to share what one company is doing to make a difference in their assisted living facilities is the chief compliance officer of Communicare, Fred Stratman. Fred, thanks so much for joining us. So Communicare owns and operates more than 90 centers and assisted living facilities across seven states. And we all know that nursing homes are among some of the hardest hit during this pandemic. What are some of the things that you're seeing and fighting during this crisis? Well, one of the things that we're seeing that is really worth mentioning today is we're actually starting to see progress. Uh, We see, you know, a hundred individual cases every day of residents moving off of the COVID units. But something that we're seeing in some of our centers is large numbers. We have a a center in Cincinnati called Burlington House. It's one of our flagship facilities in our hometown. Um, Last week, they moved 48 residents off of the COVID unit. Um, there's two centers in Indiana that are anticipating moving as many as 100 residents in the next week and a half off the COVID unit. So we're seeing progress. Yes, we see, you know, COVID spreading in the nursing homes. Um, that's a fact. But we are seeing aggressive efforts um, to treat it, to help the residents and to actually be successful in our treatment efforts. And that's an important thing to note today. And, and let's get specific there. What are some of the things that your company is doing to mitigate the effects of COVID in your nursing homes? Well, one of the first things that we did was we put an action plan in place in early March. In March 3rd, uh, we directed all of our centers to start screening every employee, every visitor, every vendor, every provider who came in. We were going to screen them for symptoms. And if they had symptoms, they were not going to be allowed in. Um, We revised that policy on March 10th to stop all visitation. And I want to note that that March 10th day that we stopped all visitation was a full three days ahead of the CMS guidance to that effect. So we wanted to create these isolated communities um, to delay the onset of COVID into the centers as much as possible. And and we were pretty successful in doing that. But obviously, we couldn't keep it out. Um, You know, you've talked about transmissibility. You've heard Dr. Ashton talk about the things that we don't know about how COVID spreads. Um, and, And certainly, we see that every day. So we're very aggressive in making sure that we're taking all precautions we can. Um, We have established great isolation procedures in all of our facilities, and our company has been very, very aggressive in terms of providing PPE and testing in our centers. You know, we we went out on our own. We purchased over 3,000 test kits uh, in mid-April, and we're testing in our hotspots where we would start to see an uptick in symptoms like um, fever, shortness of breath, loss of appetite, fatigue. And then we also provided our staff with with a great deal of PPE. Our company shipped more than 46,000 N95 masks out to the field. We shipped over 38,000 face shields. Um, About 200,000 isolation gowns went from our center to our, from our our home office to the centers. Um, And that was to supplement whatever they were getting from the suppliers and from state and local government that were helping as well. So we've really been aggressive about how we're dealing with this. Um, from a treatment perspective, we have also um, you know, put a lot of our residents on uh, those who are clinically appropriate on anticoagulants. You heard stories about strokes and blood clotting uh, in many victims. So where it's clinically appropriate, we're treating them with anticoagulants to reduce the risk of that. Uh, we're finalizing our pro- oh, sorry, we're finalizing our protocol of proning so that we're positioning people to, to reduce the risk of fluid buildup in the lungs and kind of reduce that susceptibility to acute respiratory distress syndrome that we also see a lot of. Fred Stratman, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you very much, Lindsay. 
Coming up, we continue to shine the light on hero nurses. And the first major sports event returned this weekend. We'll talk to the head of the UFC. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, What You Need to Know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Lindsay Davis. Back now with our special focus on some key caregivers during National Nurses Week. Meet the New Hampshire nurse whose personal history is helping her make a difference. My name is Danielle Finn. I'm 37 years old. I was born in Brazil. I'm an RN at Dharma Hitchcock Medical Center in Lebanon, New Hampshire. And I'm also a mother of two children, age 11 and 14. Therese, medical specialty, this is Danielle. How can I help you? We take care of all the patients that don't require ICU level care. We have to put on the protective equipment every single time we go in the room. We help them with the daily activities and provide them emotional support and try to get them connected with their families as well when possible. All right, thank you. One time I received a message from one of my co-workers saying that we were getting a COVID patient that was from Brazil that didn't speak very much English. I gave him a call, I called his room and I talked to him. I asked, you know, all the questions that we would normally ask. Being a nurse is very important to me because I just love taking care of patients. I made a promise to myself that if anyone that ever needed my care and, you know, any loved one would need something, um, little did I know that that was going to be my husband. My husband was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. It was very hard. It was difficult. Our children were age five and three. After the first round of chemotherapy, he did well for a little while, and then the cancer started to grow again. It was very aggressive. That was definitely the hardest, but still, um, being a nurse is just, I love to come in and be able to bring a smile to their faces. During this pandemic, my heroes are all of my co-workers, everyone from executives to housekeeping, transportation, everyone really have gone above and beyond um, to come up together as a team to provide the best care possible. Our deepest gratitude to Danielle Fenn and all of the nurses out there. On Saturday night, the UFC returned to the Octagon with UFC 249, the first major American sporting event since the COVID-19 pandemic shut down most of the country nearly two months ago. Here to tell us how it all went and what steps his organization took to return is UFC President Dana White. Dana, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Saturday night's UFC 249 event took place without fans in a Jacksonville, Florida arena. How is it experiencing the event in an empty arena? And and were there any surprises for you? Yeah, it was different. You know, obviously a very different experience. The entire sports experience is is raised to another level when you have fans. So it'll it'll be nice to get fans back. I just don't know how soon that's going to happen. And on Friday, one UFC fighter, Dakari Souza, and two of his cornermen tested positive for COVID-19. What safety measures did you put in place to make sure that Saturday's event was possible? Yeah, obviously we had, uh, you know, no fans there. Uh, we cut the staff that, that, that films and, and runs the back of the house in half um, leading up to the fight. Uh, you know, this week we have two more fights. We have a fight Wednesday and we have a fight Saturday. We'll do over 1,200 tests. Um, this week leading up to these two fights. So 
you know, social distancing. You know, these guys are doing advanced screening. We're keeping everybody away from each other and, and, and lots and lots of testing, antibody tests and the COVID-19 test. And as you just mentioned, you have those two additional events this week. Is there anything that you learned Saturday that will now change how you think, do things going forward? Yeah, I, I think obviously every time we do this, it's going to run smoother and smoother. Our first one was this last Saturday. We'll make sure that everything will be 100 percent better than than last week. Now, the UFC is also creating something called Fight Island so you can hold international events. What can you tell us about Fight Island? Yeah. So as I started looking at the problems that are going to face, uh, we're going to face with our business over the next however many months to a year. Obviously, the biggest one is getting people in from other countries. And we are a global business. So we're building an island out right now. All the infrastructure is being built so that we can do international fights on this island. Now, you're one of a number of sports executives on the president's advisory group dedicated to reopening the economy. What have you taken away from those meetings? And when do you believe that other major sports will return? And what would you recommend to people who are heading up uh, those major sports? The calls have been great, very productive, a lot of good input, a lot of good questions. Now that we just did it, I have a 30-page document that's been submitted to the governor of California, uh, the governor of Nevada and the governor of Florida, and uh, on how to do this safely. Now we've already been through it. We've done it. We, you know, we've learned some things from last Saturday. We'll learn even more on, on you know, this Wednesday and, and the following Saturday, and we're sharing uh, all this information with anybody who wants who wants or needs it. Dana White, thanks so much to you. And a reminder that you can catch more live UFC action later on this week, Wednesday on ESPN Plus and Saturday on ESPN. And when we come back, the nurse devoting a helping hand to the most vulnerable among us and how he says the pandemic has changed his care. This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Lindsay Davis. And finally today, the geriatric nurse on the front lines of this pandemic, inspired by a family member and now serving a population in desperate need of care. My name is Adam Bliss. I'm a adult geriatric nurse practitioner, and I live in Worcester, Massachusetts. What inspired me to become a nurse practitioner was watching my mother, who is an intensive care nurse, give equitable and compassionate care throughout my life. I, I was able to see her do this. And the experience I had with my Aunt Carol, who needed an organ donation, and going through that experience with her really uh, pushed me into the field of nursing. I started working at Family Health Center of Worcester in the Homeless Outreach and Advocacy Program. I remember the date so well. It was March 15th that this really started to blow up, I should say, in Massachusetts. We had about 105 healthcare volunteers. We provided medical services, primary care services, and mental health services while caring for these patients under isolation. The shelter was a place for homeless patients who don't have a home to go home to self-isolate in to come to. So we weren't a medical facility, but we were the, the home to, to isolate in. I had the opportunity to start many people who have suffered from pretty severe uh, addiction to opioids or alcohol start on treatment. One of these patients was somebody who I uh, performed a overdose response on just months prior, and now she is asking for uh, medication-assisted therapy for her opioid use disorder. And that was a really exciting thing to see that full circle come around and the motivation coming out of these patients. It truly has shaped 
me as a provider, uh, both the compassion I encompass, but also the, the way I deliver care. It's allowed me to grow leadership skills and really connect with patients on a different level. And I think that relationship I built in such an awful, scary time is going to allow me to give better care to my patients down the road. Really, anyone that's on the front line right now making this happen is a hero. The volunteers that I had, they were my heroes in all of this. They came together each day, they put on their PPE, and they put themselves at, at high risk with no other incentive other than to help a vulnerable community. And Adam Bliss, we thank you. You are one of our heroes and all the nurses on the COVID-19 crisis front lines. And Dr. Jen, we'll send it back over to you for your final thoughts today. Well, Lindsay, as we continue on our journey learning about this virus and living with this virus, I wanted to let people in on how doctors and scientists are really thinking. And one of those concepts centers around the principle in medicine and bioethics known as do no harm. Mm. And that you can look at that in response to reopening. You could look at that in response to how we protect ourselves or others. Certainly with medical treatment, we can look at that with how we take care of people who are sick with COVID-19. And definitely as we pursue research and development into preventative measures, vaccines, and even therapeutics, medications, do no harm is always at the center of it. We don't want to make a situation worse with any intervention. Right. We want to make it better. So that's always uh, front of mind for, for any doctor, definitely. All right, do no harm. All right, Dr. Jen, thank you, you as always. And so good to see you Likewise. again. And that's our show for today. I'm Lindsay Davis. Thanks for listening. ABC News, honored. Winner of four Edward R. Murrow Awards. ABC News, America's number one news choice. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.